Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Romans 11, 11 through 22. I remember years ago when I lived in Muncie, um, right after college, and moved away since then and came back, but... I remember I was driving down Wheeling Avenue one day, and I was following a car. It was a red Corvette, and I remember very distinctly the license plate. It said ornery. I should have known that that was bad news for me, because as I continued to follow this car, suddenly it stopped right in the middle of the road. It wasn't at a stop sign or a stop light. It just stopped. And I was able to stop in time before running into his back end. And the guy got out of the car and walked back and told me in some detail what was going to happen to me if I didn't get off his rear end. (laughs) And I remember being very troubled, very rattled by Mr. Ornery here telling me what he was going to do, offering to me this threat about what would happen if I continue to follow him as closely as I did. And maybe some of you have had a similar experience where someone has issued a threat to you of some sort. You know that it's a troubling experience. It's easy to be rattled when somebody has threatened you. In the Bible, we have a lot of promises. Many of us are familiar with those promises, and we enjoy those promises, and we relish those promises. Promises of God's faithfulness, promises of his love, his forgiveness to be offered to any who come to Christ, promise of a filling of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of the body on the last day. But you know, friends, the Bible has a lot of threats in it too. The Bible makes threats. God makes threats. And those threats are not just to his enemies. It's not just threats to Babylon and the Philistines and King Herod, the enemies of God. In the Bible, there are actually threats that are issued toward the covenant community, issued toward churchgoers like ourselves. And the threats that come from God, of course, are different than the threats that come from a guy like Mr. Ornery in his red Corvette. Human threats, fallen threats, are often given with intent to harm. They're given from a motivation of anger or hostility. But God's threats are given to us out of his steadfast, loving faithfulness. God threats us for our good. (laughs) And that's what we're going to see today. How does that work? That might sound kind of strange to you, but I'll show you here how this works as we look in Romans chapter 11. Now you might remember in Romans 11, and actually 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been dealing with this question about what is going to happen to Israel, particularly because Israel had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And Paul is perplexed about that, wondering if God's promises to Israel have failed since Israel has rejected Jesus. And so he's spending a lot of time, and all through chapter 11, in great detail, he's talking in more uh, complexity about this question. And if you're wondering, when are we going to get out of these Gentile Jew weeds here in the Bible? Maybe some of you are a little tired 
of all this theological discourse, I want to encourage you just to hang on because we're going to get to chapter 12 here pretty soon. And in chapter 12, Paul suddenly turns extremely down to earth and practical, uh, starting in chapter 12 and through the rest of the book of Romans. It's not that theology is impractical, but when we get to chapter 12, um, you'll see a refreshing change there in Paul's approach. So one more thing I want to mention to you before we read this passage is just something to keep in mind is that Paul is using in this passage a metaphor or an image to help describe this relationship between Jew and Gentile, and it's the image of a tree. And in Sunday school this morning, there was a lot of talk about trees, so trees seem to be the theme of the day, and it's certainly one of the themes of this passage here in Romans 11, where Paul uses... um, the, uh, the image of an olive tree. And so on the screen here is a picture of an olive tree, which has been in the Bible, a symbol of Israel. Olive trees um, are very strong, virile trees. They're not very tall. They're only a few feet tall. Um, but they live a long time. Uh, some people say all of, there are some olive trees that exist now that are as much as a thousand years old. And some people even claim there's olive trees older than that, but they can't verify them scientifically. But um, olive trees, strong, old trees, symbolic of the nation of Israel, but used here by Paul to illustrate the way Jews and Gentiles um, relate together in the church. So with that introduction, let's read the Word of God. Please stand. As I read Romans 11, 11 through 22. Romans 11, starting with verse 11. So I ask, did they, that is Israel, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember... It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So, do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Father, we ask for your spirit to give wisdom 
knowledge, and illumination to our hearts and minds as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Promises and threats. They're both included in the scriptures, and we're going to look at them both, and that's basically the two points of the message. God's promises and God's threats. First of all, we're looking at his promises to Israelite unbelievers, and then we'll look at God's threats to Gentile believers. Okay? Two points. So first of all, his promises to Israelite unbelievers. Now we see this kind of advancing in these early verses of this passage where Paul is talking about the history of the nation of Israel and where they are presently and what's going to happen in the future. And so he says three things here. First of all, he talks about Israel being broken off. So look with me here at this passage, and you'll see a lot of negative terms here being used to describe Israel. He says in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Paul is asking, did Israel stumble just so that it can be shown that they have been dismissed and forgotten by God? He mentions also in verse 11 that it's through their trespass that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass. Verse 12 also, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. So all these terms being used here by Paul to describe the trespass, failure of Israel. And that all leads up to verse 17, where Paul says if some of the branches were broken off. And what Paul is referring to there is the nation of Israel being compared to branches which have been broken off of an olive tree. So what is all this imagery intended to describe? What Paul is talking about is the fact that God's intent after Jesus came, died on the cross, was risen from the dead and appointed his apostles to go forward with the gospel. God's first intent was to send apostles to the Jews. The gospel went to the Jews first. You might remember Peter was an apostle to the Jews while Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul says in verse 13. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. The reason Paul was raised up as an apostle to the Gentiles is because Peter and others who went to the Jews first found that the Jews rejected the gospel. The Jews disbelieved. Not all of them, but a large number of them didn't receive Jesus as Savior and so lost their privileges as God's people. And so that's what Paul is saying here about this branch being broken off from the olive tree. And we see this elsewhere in the Gospels. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 21. Therefore I tell you, he's speaking to Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The kingdom of God doesn't belong to Israel anymore. Now it's going to be given to the Gentiles. So that's what this olive tree, branches being broken off imagery is intending to convey. It's a tragic thing. It's really a shocking thing. Here's Israel. They're the ones who've been given all these special spiritual blessings over the centuries. And they're the ones that don't even recognize their own Messiah. But God, in the midst of this, is doing something strangely wonderful. In his providence, he has a purpose for why Israel would reject the gospel. And we see that in the next step here. It's so that the Gentiles 
could be grafted in. So <clears throat> if we go to the book of Acts, for instance, Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Jews rejected the gospel, so now we're going to take it to Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And so you see this described here in verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, it was through their trespass that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Where else does he say this? Verse 12 as well. Now, if their trespass, again, means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying here is that the Jews rejecting the gospel then was the occasion for the gospel to go to the Gentiles who then received it and were then grafted in to the olive tree. So notice how Paul describes this in verse 17. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, the Jews, and you, though a wild olive shoot, that's the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the tree. So let me show you what this looks like. I don't know how clear that is. It's kind of a messy photo, but those are wild olive shoots growing out of the bottom of an olive tree. Olive shoots came out of the, the bottom trunk of the tree. Um, olive shoots were not cultivated. That's why they're called wild. They were a little bit more like weeds. They were just considered to be worthless, something to be cast aside. But what Paul is telling us here is that God in his mercy and in his wisdom gave opportunity for Gentiles then to be grafted in to the olive tree. And this is a picture here of an olive shoot being grafted in to an olive tree or into a branch. Presumably a branch had been lopped off there and now the olive shoot is being grafted in. And so again in verse 17, you see this, that the wild olive shoot is being grafted in and then shares in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So the shoot now receives the sap, the nutrients, the strength that comes from the olive tree. And so if you're a Gentile today, which I think describes pretty much everybody here, uh, some of you might be Jews, I, I don't know, maybe have some Jewish blood in you, but realize that this is about you. You were the olive shoot, the wild olive shoot. You, you were the one at one time who was just kind of like a weed growing up at the bottom of a tree, and yet God in his wisdom arranged a way for you who trust Christ to be grafted in to the olive tree. It's a tremendous blessing, an enormous privilege that God has arranged for us. But Paul's not done here in this explanation. Israel's broken off, Gentiles are grafted in, and there's like a ricochet effect going on here where the ball kind of bounces off of Israel over to the Gentiles, but then when Paul says, looking to the future, there's a promise that the ball is now going to bounce from the Gentiles back to the Jews. And so he makes this promise of Israel's future inclusion. Look at this in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, 
How much more will their, that is Israel's, full inclusion mean? Verse 15 as well. If their rejection, the Jews' rejection, means reconciliation of the world, the Gentiles coming to Christ, what will their acceptance mean, looking ahead, but life from the dead? I think that means spiritual life. They're going to be born again. They were spiritually dead, and they're going to be made alive as they are accepted by God through their faith in Jesus. Now, these phrases here are very interesting, aren't they? Their full inclusion. What does that mean? And later in verse 26, which we'll get to next week, Paul talks about, says, all Israel will be saved. Those are weighty phrases uh, upon which there is a lot of disagreement. And I'm going to tell you now, I'm not going to get into that question about what those phrases actually mean. We're going to talk about that next Sunday, God willing. We'll talk about what that means, okay, as we finish chapter 11. But today we want to look at how how this happens. How is it that it's going to happen that the Jews are going to come back and receive Christ as Savior? And we see this in verses 11 and 14. Verse 11 again, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles So as to make Israel jealous, verse 14 as well, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. It seems like what Paul is saying here is that the time is coming when Jewish people are going to look to see the blessings that we have as Gentiles. They're going to see that we do know the one true Savior. They're going to see that We know what it is to be reconciled to God through faith in a crucified Savior. They're going to see the peace and the joy that we have as a result of knowing Jesus. They're going to see the hope that we have for the future. And they're going to long for it. They're going to want what we have. And God has arranged it in such a way that that is going to be the means by which the Jews come back to Christ. The question of how many Jews... What that looks like, again, next week. But for the time being, for today's purposes, I think it's worth it just to ask this question. If this is what's going to happen in the future, and that is the Jews are going to long for what we have, I think it's legitimate to ask if that's happening now in our lives. Maybe not just with Jews, but with anybody. Do people look at your life knowing you're a Christian and long for what you have? Are people jealous of what you're like and the way you live? Is there any difference between the way you live and the way your unbelieving neighbor lives? Is there anything that draws a person to you? Do they see peace and joy in your heart in the midst of crisis and trial? Do they they see an attitude of grace and patience and mercy with your enemies? Do they see that you're sacrificial in the way you use your money and your resources and your time? Do they see that you have a confidence in the face of death? It's something that ought to be present among Christian people because this is the promise. That's going to be the means by which the Jews come to faith in Christ. So that's the promise 
the future promise to unbelieving Israel. But let's move on to the second point, which are the threats that are given to Gentile believers. Threats to Gentile believers. One of the reasons I want to put the number of Israel's, Israelites who will be saved question to tomorrow, excuse me, till next week, is because of verse 13, where Paul makes it very clear who he's speaking to. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He's speaking to, to you and me. He's speaking to New Life Presbyterian Church, a congregation of Gentiles. And he offers this threat to us, Gentiles. And what is the threat? Well, it's in verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So here Paul talks about the severity and kindness of God. We get this wonderful balance of the attributes of God. We've got a Sunday school class going on on God's attributes where we're talking about these kinds of things. And many of us have a tendency to want to cling to one attribute or another. Some of us really like the idea of a loving, gracious God, but not so much of a wrathful God. And some of us actually kind of like the wrathful God, those of us who are more justice kind of people. We kind of identify more with the angry God and... We're not so sure exactly how loving God is, but here we have this wonderful balance. God is a God of severity and kindness. He's a God of wrath and a God of love. He's a God of justice and a God of grace. And we see this captured best at the cross, don't we? Where God's judgment is brought down on Jesus, our Savior, all out of love, though, to forgive and save those who would trust in him. But in the context here, I think what Paul has in mind with severity is what we've already talked about. That is what happened to the Jews. They didn't believe in Jesus, and so they were broken off. That's how God's severity was shown. God's kindness was shown in the gospel going to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles coming to place faith in Christ and receiving forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. But again, <clears throat> notice what Paul does here. He makes this promise conditional. And he says that we're called to continue in God's kindness. And if we don't, we'll be cut off. Now that, that, ought, to make us, that ought to make us tremble a little bit. That, that, that ought to make us all feel a little bit like what I felt when the guy got out of the Corvette and threatened me. We ought to all be a little uncomfortable here because the gospel does offer to us the freedom of forgiveness of sins upon faith alone, and yet the gospel also gives these repeated commands to God's people to not give up, to persevere, to continue. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Writer to the Hebrews, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, firm to the end. Well, we've all seen this happen, right? I mean, we, we know the people who, you know, they professed faith in Christ, they got baptized, they were in church every Sunday. We might have even used the phrase on fire to describe them. And then all of a sudden they just kind of disappeared. Where are they? Nobody really knows. Oh, I, I heard that he's uh, atheist now. You've all seen it happen with churches, too. 
churches that once proclaimed the gospel. And then they just began to drift. They began to compromise. And all of a sudden the church died and whole denominations sometimes fail. In Europe there are, are a number of examples of church buildings that are now used as private homes and shopping malls. Because the churches have died. What Paul is saying here is that there is a command to continue in the faith. To not give up. If I may use one other example from my Christopher Hitchens book that I keep talking to you about. Um, this book about Hitchens, who was this very famous atheist, died a few years ago and struck up a friendship with a Christian named Larry Taunton. And that's what the book's about. It's about the friendship of these two guys. And in the book, Taunton describes the way they, they first met. And Taunton was saying he'd heard all these things about Hitchens. He was scared to death about what it was going to be like to meet the guy. And he was in a hotel room. And he was waiting for Hitchens to show up and heard the knock on the door. And he opened the door, and Hitchens just comes through and says, Can you believe it? The Archbishop of Canterbury has endorsed Sharia law. It's the first thing he says. Doesn't introduce himself or anything. And he goes on and he says, Whatever happened to a church that believed in something? And then Taunton says to him, Wow, Christopher, that sounds like you have a kind of a nostalgic wish for a church that took the Bible seriously. And Hitchens says, perhaps I do. Perhaps I do. An atheist longing for a church that actually stood for something. In this day and age, we see so many churches drifting away from orthodoxy. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews commands us to be aware of. We must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. It's possible. You might drift away. New life could drift away. Maybe this will be a shopping mall one day. What Paul is saying is don't think that's impossible. If you don't continue, you'll be cut off. Paul's concern here in particular is for the Gentiles and the Jews in the church in Rome. And apparently the Gentiles have been getting a little bit haughty and self-righteous about the fact that they've been grafted in. And the Jews had been cut off, and the Gentiles were starting to get a little presumptuous, a little self-righteous, a little proud. And so Paul is taking this time to confront them and to challenge them. And, and he says three quick things here in verses 18 through 21. First thing he tells them is, remember your roots, Gentiles. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward those branches that were cut off. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root. The root supports you. See, and you've got to remember, Gentiles, you're the beneficiaries of promises that were made originally to Israel. Those promises were to Abraham to begin with. God's original intent and concentration was on the Jews, and now you're coming second in line here. And you need not to forget that. You owe something to the Jewish nation. You should be reverent toward the Jewish nation. You should not be arrogant or snobby or self-righteous about the fact that you're a Christian and they're not. Some of you know about Martin Luther, of course. We quote him a lot and we love Martin Luther, but some of you might know that near the end of his life he made a lot of nasty comments about the Jewish people. And we should be prepared as Christians to say, even as much as we love Martin Luther, that that is just entirely inexcusable. That there is no room for a Christian 
to maintain or hold to anything resembling anti-Semitism, particularly with regard to what we're seeing Paul here say to the Gentiles. Don't be arrogant. Remember your roots. But he also says, remember the gospel. Verses 19 and 20. He says, then you'll say, Gentiles, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You know, God got rid of the Gentiles for me. God couldn't wait to have me in the kingdom. And so he pushed aside the Jews for me. But Paul goes on and says, that's true. It's true that the branches were broken off. That's true. But the reason they were broken off is because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. You're not grafted in because you're good, moral, religious people. You haven't been grafted in because God somehow likes Gentiles more than he likes Jews. It's not an ethnic thing. It's not a racist thing. The only reason that you're in, Gentiles, is through faith in what Jesus has done. That's it. It has nothing to do with anything you've done. It's only because Jesus lived a righteous life and Jesus died on a cross and Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Your faith is in him. It's because of him that you're in, not because of you. And so he goes on and he says, um, don't be proud. Stand in awe. Stand in awe of the gospel. It's the only reason that you have been grafted in. Ephesians 2, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one should boast, so that no one would be proud. Remember the gospel, and then thirdly, he says, and remember what happened. Going back to what we've been talking about through this whole message, verse 21. If God did not spare the natural branches, he didn't spare the Jews, because they fell into unbelief, Neither will he spare you. Again, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So here's what Paul is saying. Getting us to reflect on the possibility of this kind of drifting away. And, And here's how it happens very often in people's lives. They're in church on Sunday mornings and... You know, they just decide to take a few Sundays off, and next thing you know, there's been four or five Sundays since they've been in church. Next thing you know, it's been a year since they've been in church. Their desire for the Word, they used to read the Bible, but that desire kind of dries up. No interest there, really, anymore. Certain kind of resentment rises up in their hearts about Christians, all those hypocrites, all the things that they find wrong in the church. Their heart gets hardened. They begin to rethink things. The idea of hell, I just don't like that. I'm going to put that aside. The idea of a virgin birth, that seems impossible. I'm going to put that aside. The idea that Jesus is the only way to the Father sounds so narrow. I'm going to put that aside. The idea of a wrathful God that requires a crucified Savior for my salvation sounds too violent. I'm going to put that aside. And then they're saying something like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to say there's no God, but I don't really like to call myself a Christian. And at that point, the drift is almost complete.
call to all of us to examine our lives. Is, is, that, is, that, is that what's happening in my life? Is my heart drifting? I know the question that a lot of you are having now. Is it, are, are you telling me, is Paul saying it's possible to lose your salvation? That's the question that we're all asking. Is, is that possible? And the answer is no. It's not possible. So l- let me explain how this works and we'll be done. There's a wonderful promise in Jeremiah about the new covenant. Brian was talking about covenant breaking. We live on this side of the cross in what's called the new covenant. And there's a prophecy about the new covenant in Jeremiah 32 where God says this, I will make with them, my people, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. But look how he does it. And I will put the fear of God, excuse me, the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. When someone is born again by the Spirit, what God also does is he puts in that person a fear of God so that they can't bear to think of turning away from him. And so, in any church setting, in any congregation, in any church building this morning throughout the world, and in this place as well, there are two groups of people. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. I'm quite sure that's the case here, that there are non-Christians here. There might be non-Christians who think they're Christians, but in any case, there are those two groups. The non-Christians, the unbelievers, when they hear these threats, they're unmoved. They might be asleep. They're not troubled. They're not concerned. They might be thinking, that's foolish and such ridiculous. I don't believe any of this stuff anyway. It might be that, you know, explicit. Or it could be that they're, they're saying, this can't be directed to me because I'm one of the good people. I mean, I'm one of the moral people. I, I'm a conservative person. I, I'm always in church. I do the right thing. I haven't done any of the bad things my friends have done. So this can't be directed to me. God would never cut, cut me off. I'm too good. And so they're not alarmed. They're not troubled at all. That's the typical kind of unbeliever response to this. But, but the believer, the true believer, when, when this kind of threat is given, I mean, they're, they're, their palms are just a little more sweaty than normal. They're not quite as sleepy as they sometimes are. They're, they're, they're leaning forward in their chair just a little more because God has put a fear of him in their hearts and they're concerned. And I can tell by the silence in the room right now that there's a lot of believers in here. We're paying attention and listening. That's a sign that the Spirit of God is at work in you. It's a sign that he is making you sensitive to his word. And when you hear a threat like this, you're troubled. And that's a good response. If you're even a little bit troubled, you should be delighted today. That God has been faithful to you. He he is ensuring that you're going to persevere. Here's what John Owen said. Believers are subject to sloth and security to wax dead, dull, cold, and formal in their course. So to awaken them and warn them and excite them into a renewal of their obedience, God sets before them threatenings. 
Maybe you're in a place today where you just you need to be shaken up a little bit. That's what God's doing today. He's waking you up. And he's saying, you know what? Maybe, maybe you need to get back to the scriptures. Maybe you need to get back on your knees. Maybe you need to get back here on Sunday mornings on a more regular basis. God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to elect them to salvation from before the foundation of the world. And he's also faithful to use every appropriate means to keep you close to him. And one of those means is threats. Just remember, friends, the same Paul who wrote chapter 11 also wrote chapter 8. And let me just remind you of this as we close. Verse 38, chapter 8, Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a love that will not let us go. And that's worth singing about. So let's stand and get ready to sing. Our Father, we thank you that you are faithful even to issue threats to awaken us and turn us back to you. Sometimes these things rattle us, but Lord, we know that they are given to us in your grace and kindness. We praise you and ask, Father, that you would hold us close to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.